shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for joining us on Inside EMS. This is the only podcast that takes you inside EMS. You know, um, I think we got a lot of good stuff to talk about today, but I can't do it. I can't start it without my good friend Kelly Grayson. So, Kelly, how are you? I'm good, man. Just still trying to process the events of uh, of the past week. Um, it's been a been a sucky week for EMS and law enforcement. Yeah, you know what? I I think you're right, and I think what we're going to do is we're going to kind of take time <laughs> during this show. Because now, as as we think about what's happened in Dallas, and as we think about the the shootings, the other police shootings that are going on around the United mm-hmm. States, you know, one of the things that really scared me, Kelly, was I, I saw a Facebook post. It may have been last Friday or Saturday. I don't even remember which one it was, but it, it was basically a Facebook post that says, "Hey, remember that fire and police are the same people." So when we're targeting police, we may as, might as well start targeting fire as well. Yeah, ridiculous. You know, exactly. So when we think about, you know, EMTs and paramedics and firefighters, it's very easy that we could have been the ones that were on the news last week. And I think from our standpoint, we really need to kind of think about how do we help our listeners, the people who are out there on the truck, stay vigilant. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm going to kick it to you first and, and kind of see what your thoughts are on that. And then I think we need to banter back and forth of that if we're sitting on the ambulance, what are the things that we do as partners to help each other, to protect each other, and to kind of keep that awareness of what's going on around it? You know, Kelly, I've said on this show in the past that, you know, EMS providers are great at looking for scene safety, but we're not we're not by far good. Uh, you know, experts when it comes to maintaining scene safety. Yeah, we treat that, it like a it's something we check right before we begin care, and exactly, then, and then it's done. Um, you know, I think we, I think we, uh, part of the problem with that is, is, is we we pay lip service to it uh, in training, uh, and we, you know, in our training and scenarios, we we never really stress the importance of it thereafter. Uh, you know, you're an EM, you're a paramedic. You know, how how do you begin every scenario uh, with those with those famous words? Right. Scene safe, safe BS- universal precautions. Yeah, right. that's right. Scene safe, BSI, and and no one says, you know, and, and then it's, you know, your examiner, or your instructor says, scene is safe. Yeah, the scene is safe, uh, and and nothing more is mentioned about it, uh, and and we need to start teaching. EMTs from the the very first moments of their training that uh, a there is no such thing as a truly safe scene and b uh, assessing scene safety and, and being situationally aware uh, of your surroundings and and the the actions of others is something that's a dynamic process and it has to be ongoing throughout your interaction with the patient and the bystanders and the public in general we cannot afford to be totally focused uh, on the patient sitting in front of us to the exclusion of of all other input. Yeah, I want to ask you that, Kelly, because I think you bring up a good point because I know what's happened to me. Have you ever done that where you've looked around and you say, okay, the scene is safe, and then throughout the assessment, you've noticed that there's a a weapon around or you've noticed that there's, uh, you know, the, the patient is belligerent. Now you've put yourself in a position where, 
you know, you, you may not move out of that back room of the house without uh, a confrontation. I mean, you ever been in those situations? Oh yeah, yeah, been in been in plenty of those situations, uh, and and been around, um, you know, calls where been on calls where where there was a weapon uh, present, uh, and I was cognizant of the fact that there was a re- weapon present, and and other people were not. Uh, luckily for for me, it was one of those situations where the the person uh, who had a weapon was a concealed carry permit holder and 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 had no untoward attentions. He was just wearing his you know his weapon like he like he normally would in the course of a day. Uh, in one case, I I uh, I told the police officer, um, or, or I I didn't tell the police officer when the guy told the police officer that he had a weapon. Um, uh, I already knew it. And the police officer was absolutely surprised. Uh, you know, I had. Uh, you know, seen the guy or introduced myself to the guy. He'd wrecked his motorcycle and, uh, was walking around the scene of the accident and, and not all that severely injured, but wanted to be taken to the hospital and checked out. Uh, and I, and I noticed him printing. Um, you could see the outline of his, of his weapon under his, uh, his vest. Um, so, uh, you know, I introduced myself to him and, and, and checked him out. And when the cop asked him for his, uh, when the state trooper asked him for his driver's license, he handed over his CHL as well, uh, as we're required to do in Louisiana. <clears throat> and the state trooper, you know, kind of surprised, said, uh, you're carrying your weapon now? He said, yes, sir, I got it in my vest. And, the, you know, then the trooper just shrugged and said, well, you don't pull yours, I won't pull mine. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you learn to be, uh, when you know, speaking only for myself, when you, when you carry a weapon yourself, uh, you, you kind of learn to be cognizant of when you're, uh, printing and when your, uh, weapon may be showing, uh, and you tend to unconsciously look for that sort of thing in others. And that's just a, a tiny example of, of being situationally aware and, and knowing what's going on around you. Um, uh, for me, it has been, you know, being more cognizant of, of, of people, looking at me um because i might uh i'm carrying a weapon you know i always wonder or you know do they know that i'm carrying something uh, uh am i am i you know printing or, or do i have some sort of tell that tells them that um but you know the side effect has been that that i am more aware of other people um <clears throat> but yeah, that's the lesson i try to pass on to my partners is you can't just uh check it once and then stop uh, and you always have to be thinking ahead. If something happens, what are our actions going to be? How are we going to deal with uh, with an evolving threat? How are we going to deal with a, a situation that may come up? Um, you you can't afford to be totally in the moment. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think you bring up that situational awareness, and and are people taught to you know to look for those uh, you know those printings and you know, those outlines and, and those types of things and people who could be carrying weapons. And, you know, even if you're not a concealed handgun uh, holder, uh, you're, you could still be carrying a concealed weapon. And, and you know, you think about the places, Kelly, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I used to talk about with my EMTs and paramedics is have you ever been on a scene where um, you went into somebody's house who is now hypoglycemic and you've tried to treat them and it's become violent because these people, all they know is that they're strangers in their house and they're trying to defend their house. Well, in Missouri, um, it's an open carry state. Yeah. I can conceal a weapon in my car, 
Um, what about the similar situation now? You're in somebody's you know, car because they may be hypoglycemic, and you're now mm-hmm. trying to treat them and give them the, you know, the sugar that they need to kind of wake up out of this condition. And now they're pulling this concealed weapon that they have hidden between the seats or wherever that is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we lose situational awareness when it comes to doing our job. And, and I would hate that some of the EMTs and the paramedics that are out there could get caught in this complacency that could eventually kill them. But I, I, I want to switch gears on you a little bit, Kelly, and talk about, mm-hmm. you know, specifically what happened in Dallas last week where, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, these cops were in a position to be slaughtered by an ambush of this guy who, uh, uh, you know, just brazenly, cowardly took their lives. You know, in the similar situation of an arsonist setting a fire and, and the fire department showing up and an ambulance showing up, and now there's, you know, there's shooting that's coming from behind us or coming from in front of us mm-hmm. that's picking us off one by one. I mean, what are the what are the steps that we need to come up with? And I don't know that as an EMS leader that I had any policy on this, but if you and I are sitting here and we're partners in the truck, how do we protect each other in situations like this? Well, you know, I think you go back to the three R's. Uh, Reading, writing, uh, and arithmetic? Is that what it is? No, no. no, no retreat, the three retreat radio, and reassess the situation. Um, you need to find cover. And, and by that, I mean just that, cover, not concealment. Um, uh, and you need to radio for help. And, well, what's the and, difference between cover and concealment? I well, uh, let's take the Dallas uh, shooter uh, as the, the operative example here. You know, the man was shooting an SKS, uh, Soviet-designed SKS, uh, that shoots a 7.62 by 39 projectiles, roughly comparable and maybe a little less, a little ballistically inferior to a, a Winchester 3030, um, uh, similar ballistics. But you know, basically, it's a high-powered rifle. Uh, it, it is even more so than than a, than a, a puny AR-15 .223 caliber uh, or 5.56 NATO. Someone shooting at you with a with a uh, high-velocity rifle round, uh, hiding behind a car is not going to keep you safe. It will punch through both doors of the car, the seat, and you. Uh, if you're hiding behind a wall, uh, it will punch through that wall just nicely, punch through you, punch through the other wall, and might even hit your neighbor across the street. Yeah, but you don't know uh, that at the time of what they're shooting with. I mean, so how do you make the, the well, appropriate decision then, of what you're hiding you, behind? Then you make it, then you treat, you treat every gunshot as if it could be uh, uh, a rifle round, and you hide behind something solid. Solid. If you're gonna if you're gonna bail out of your ambulance, for example, um, you need to hide behind an axle. Uh, get low. You need to be- hide behind one of the axles uh, or the engine block, um, and, and not to just uh, you know get out of your vehicle and hide behind a door or hide behind the body of the car uh, where right, someone not the movies. shoot under it. Yeah, you've got to exactly. Uh, if you're going to use a vehicle as cover. Uh, you're going to have to hide behind uh, one of the axles of the engine block. Uh, And and even that is suboptimal. If you're going to hide behind a wall, uh, you know, uh, 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 any decent rifle round, even a .223, is going to fragment to all the pieces. But uh, if you're hiding on the other side of a cinder block wall, uh, I can shoot right through that cinder block wall with a 223 and hit you on the other side. Uh, yeah, but I got to take spend a, a lot of its energy and and uh, before it it gets you, but it's still going to get you. 
Sure. But I would think a wall is something that's, you know, is going to be safe and, you know, and protect me. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of things here that the, the EMS providers need to think about when it comes to, you know, these types of things and, and, and how we're going to keep ourselves safe. Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad you have this expertise, but I would think a wall would be safe. And, and I think that we do get complacent when we watch that stuff on TV mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, assault rifles being shot at somebody's car and, and they're hiding on the other side of the driver's door. Um, that, that's not reality, man. And, and, no. and you know, that's something that uh, is going to get us hurt. But, uh, you know, so I'm kind of glad that you bring that up. You know, and the shooter was was from the news reports, and and of course, uh, obviously, the news reports change as we learn more information, and and almost without fail, the first reports are always wrong. Uh, but you know, the I haven't seen anything to dispute that the the uh, assertion that the shooter was uh, shooting from an elevated position, uh, at least in the beginning. So uh, you know, and that makes it doubly difficult. Uh, not only do you have to uh, to you, do you have to find cover? Uh, and if you can't find cover, concealment will is the next best option. Um, but you know you, your shooter's uh, uh, has a vantage point that you don't. He can look down on you. Right. Um, and that's, and that's what the you, optimal position, you know, that's the optimal yeah, position. For yeah, he's got the high ground, and 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 you uh, are a dis- distinct disadvantage. So the, I would say that the probably the best thing you can do is is uh, put some distance between you uh, and the shooter. And uh, that's the the uh, uh, retreat part, um, and and hopefully you know find some cover while you're while you're gaining some distance from the shooter. Right. Um, you know, move laterally uh, and and away. Uh, you know, a fleeing suspect is or a fleeing person is one that can just be shot in the back. Um, so move laterally uh, and away from the threat, uh, and try to get as much put as much cover as you can between you and the threat uh, while you're doing so uh, and scream for help. Oh no, don't just, don't scream for help. Try to calm your, your adrenaline rush and, and ask for help on the radio because that's going to, uh, you know, you'll, you'll communicate better that way. Yeah, I think the realization is that they're screaming, but, um, yeah, I know that, but you try to master that, um, uh, with varying degrees of success, but, but, but panicky screaming doesn't get you help any faster. In fact, it slows everything down. Yeah. But I don't know in, in, you know, we've, we've been in those situations where our peers have done that and, you know, ultimately they're always going to say, well, I didn't know I was screaming and that's just the adrenaline that's, <laughs> you know, that's coming in. You know, one of the things you told work that was shot at one time, uh, and he stuttered, uh, he, uh, he, he tended to, to normally, stu- you mean normally he stuttered? Yeah, normally, normally stuttered. Uh, and when the, uh, when the patient they were called to help stepped outside and started capping off rounds with the lever action rifle, he took off, he and his partner took off through the woods. And that was the first time in known history that he did not stutter at all. <laughs> he, he was, he right. was very succinct, you know, he said, sure. yeah, three, we're, we're, we're taking fire. We're on foot and in the woods, uh, and didn't stutter a bit. So, uh, That's that funny. was the joke is, uh, you know, if you want Robert to not stutter, you just shoot at him. Shoot at him. <laughs> Right. You know, it's funny that you say that. You know, one of the things that uh, I think the lesson when you talk about an elevated position, one of the things that I want to bring up is that, uh, and I think that you're right. I mean, when we first heard the reports, they were coming from an elevated position. Uh, and then I think the, the shooter came out from behind there and got on the street. But one of the things that was amazing to me, Kelly, was that 
from an elevated position with gunshots being uh, fired that the cops were still running towards the gunfire, mm-hmm. even knowing that this guy was from because you know, an elevated position. And we learned that in Revenge of the Sith that Obi-Wan Kenobi had the high ground and you wind up losing <laughs> yeah. your legs if you're Anakin Skywalker because of that. But what was impressive is that these guys were running towards the gunshots knowing that the shooter could be in an elevated position, which is an optimal place to be when you're trying to pick off targets. Yeah. Well, you know, and you've got you, you've got a shooter who whose professed intent uh, was to kill white people and preferably white cops. And 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 the thing I want to point out is not uh, it's not a racial thing or it's not a pro cop or an anti black thing. But I just like to point out that that white cops who were taking fire at a Black Lives Matter rally ran toward the threat and sacrificed their own safety to get the very people that were protesting against them to safety. They, they ran toward the shooter, uh, and they, and they, they ignored their own safety to help, uh, usher protesters to, to safety. Um, and that's the, to me, I think that needs to be the takeaway message. No matter what our differences, black, white, cop, civilian, whatever, good people are good people. Uh, and we need to focus on that and, and, and stop the hate between us. And I think that's a very, very important fact. And, and just because that there are a few bad apples in the, you know, in the barrel doesn't mean that the the whole barrel is going to go bad. Eventually, mm-hmm. I think that that's a, you know, a challenge. But you know, now all cops are being lumped into uh, the poor decisions of a few. And and then when you look at some of these decisions, I, I think that the police officers really need to take a. Um, and, and it's hard to say, take a minute to, to assess the situation because they may mm-hmm. not have a minute. And uh, But anyway, I don't really want to talk specifically yeah. about the shootings. But So uh, let's go ahead and just recap here before we you know move on to the next question. So if there's going to be fire uh, from uh, outside, Kelly Grayson, one of the recommendations you have is that uh, don't get behind an area that is uh, going to allow the round to come through. If you're going to use yeah. the ambulance as shelter, you want to go ahead and get behind the engine wall. I'm sorry, the engine block, or you want to get behind an axle or something that's more solid. Mm-hmm. And but I, I really want to go back to the point of situational awareness and something that we don't keep. Now you and I as partners are, are, are on scene. Mm-hmm. How do we watch each other? How do we deliver the highest quality of patient care? Because we both have responsibilities for that patient. If you're doing the assessment, I'm getting the vital signs. I'm looking at the medications while you're trying to get an understanding of what's going on. How do we now change that component to watching each other's back in, in that situation? Uh, you know, and that's a good question. I don't, I don't think it's one that we can answer um, uh, you're part of the problem is we don't consider the question and, until it's, uh, we really need to consider it while the, the situation is, is happening right before us. So I guess one of the, the things that you would do is, is, uh, communicate with your partner, um, and not communicate, not so much communicate during the incident, although that's, that's vital. Uh, you need to communicate before the incident, um, we need to start thinking about when when we pregame and and uh, when we preplan a scenario before we go in. You know, I'm sure you've done this. I've done this a million times. When you go to a call 
you're called to a cardiac arrest, for example, you know, you're, you're talking with your partner about what the game plan is when you arrive on scene. Uh, I'll do this, you do that. Um, we need to also start taking that same approach to, to uh, perceived and, or, and unforeseen uh, scene threats. Um, uh, if this goes south, how are we going to get back to the ambulance? What are we going to do uh, uh, with this patient? Or, or how are we going to uh, egress from the scene? And, and, and uh, where do we meet back up? And, and that sort of thing. Uh, I think that, you know, and it all goes back to education. You, you need to, uh, we need to start teaching people that the scene size up is not something, uh, uh, is also going to include uh uh, ingress and egress and, and safety for you uh, and not just from you know your typical scene hazards but from someone who is an actual uh, uh, overt threat um, uh, who is willfully trying to do you harm uh, you know we we teach scene safety you know and, and we we pound it into people's heads that uh well you got to look for down power lines and you got to look for for uh traffic hazards and you got to look for this and that and that mean dog that's in the yard uh but we don't talk that much about uh we got to look for an ambush uh and uh routes of of uh escape uh, should that occur and, and how you, you know, what can we use as uh, uh, concealment uh, as we flee the scene to get to actual cover. Um, that needs to be part of the process. It, it needs to be part of the the thought process uh, from day one. And the only way we, we can do that is, is to start uh, actively assessing it, talking it out with our partners. And when we teach new EMTs, it needs to be part of the process from day one. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I, especially, I think we need to bring that into the classroom. But one of the things that you said I want to touch on, because I think we kind of glossed over it, where you, you kind of mentioned to say, you know, if we're going to, what are the ingress and the egress of getting out of here? And, you know, if, if, uh, if we need to, where do we, where do we meet up after this? But one of the challenges is going to be is also to talk about how you're getting out of the house. Because if we're now getting separate um, if we're now getting separated to say, look, we, if we need to, we're going to meet up on the corner of blank and blank. Mm-hmm. How do we know that our partner has gotten out of that house? How does our partner know that we've gotten out of that house if if we're talking about separating and meeting up at, at this X point? And so I think you bring up a good point, Kelly, because there may be mm-hmm. times when we're having to, to get out of the house uh, and uh, you know protect ourselves. And, oh, by mm-hmm. the way, let's go ahead and meet up after the fact. But along with that, there needs to be a component of how do I know, Kelly Grayson, that you followed me or that you got out of the house? Because now mm-hmm. I may be on that street corner waiting for you, and now you're barricaded in the house with a shooter, with a with a knife, and, and I don't know that. So there needs to be that communication as well to say, I've gotten out as well. You know, uh, and that's, that's something that I honestly hadn't uh, specifically considered. You know, I don't know if working out a, a you know, a, a duress word uh, with your partner um, to would would be feasible, or maybe that's something we should do. You know, hey, if if uh, if I'm held hostage, you know, or if I'm still in the house or safe or whatever, and people can overhear our communications, what word is going to tell you that that things are bad, or what word is going to tell you that things are good? Um, maybe you know that that's just me spitballing. Uh, that may be something you need to consider uh, in pre-planning things and communicating with your partner. Um, 
but it, but you know we're back to communication and that's another thing that uh um you know many agencies I've worked at uh didn't uh you know didn't pay sufficient attention to um radios uh how many how many places have you been to, Chris, where where uh, a crew was assigned a radio, right, right, but right. not each crew member, you know? So you had one guy who, on the on the crew who who carried the radio, and and Which is that not a was best it. practice by any no, means. not a best practice, and and you know I uh, I think that's one of the things that KHEP looks at at their accreditation process. Do, do does each crew member carry a radio on their persons, uh, and we do that here. Um, we each have a radio, and we're required by by policy to carry it, and subject to discipline when we're not. Do you have those uh, emergency but, buttons but, on those radios? No, we don't, and that's that and that's was another the next thing and that's yeah, another that, challenge. Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to point out is is our but our radios are not equipped with duress buttons, um, and I think that uh, that would that should be a best practice is that your radios be equipped with emergency buttons, uh, also and an identifier. That when you right. key up that right. emergency button, they know what radio it is, uh, who's carrying it, and and who's calling for help. Uh, unfortunately, quite often when we call on the radio, our our dispatcher's middle name is unit calling. Um, so uh, you know, I, I could have bled out uh, sure. before they'll answer me sometimes. Because you but, may not even have the opportunity to speak. You may just be <laughs> you may just be keying up the microphone. But one of the best practices that I've had when I worked in the MedStar system as a paramedic was every morning when we went available, they you know, or we set up um, you know, who I was working today, I'm working with Kelly Grayson on, mm-hmm. you know, unit forty six. They would always say, key up your radios, and they would know exactly what radio I was carrying um, in, within the dispatch system. That's the best practice, and that's what we need mm-hmm. to do because if I go into a scene right now, Kelly, you, you said it really well. If I go into a scene right now and I'm hurt and the only thing I could do is key up my radio and, and I can't really speak – you know, there needs to be some type of, uh, uh, you know, collaboration into that. Uh, if I'm not answering, uh, I could be in trouble. And uh, but, you know, this is a really, really scary thing to think mm-hmm. about in this day and age, Kelly. And uh, I really don't know what the answers are. So I'm going to kind of pitch it to you for your final thought. Well, you know, it's it's um, uh, I've been I've been stressing it throughout the entire podcast. It's it's communication and education. Um, uh it, it, history has taught us that that when you're not trained for something, your instinctual response is suboptimal, you know, and that that uh, the better response is the one that you're trained to do. Um, so we need to start thinking about these things. We need to start training for them actively uh, and, and incorporate that sort of thing uh, into our initial education. Uh, you know, we, you and I have talked about warm zone operations. Um, and, and we, we get listeners who's a warm zone. No, it's just, that's no place for an EMT. Uh, we don't need to go in until the scene is safe and secure. Well, I guess what, you know, uh, last week, uh, there was no warm zone. There was a hot zone. Uh, and if you were an EMT standing by at that black lives matter protest, when gunfire erupted, well, guess what? Downtown Dallas was your warm zone, and you're smack dab in the middle of it. The only cold zone was outside the DFW Metroplex, and the hot zone was anything within 300 yards of the shooter. Uh, it's unrealistic to assume that you can go into a totally safe scene. You need to be prepared for uh, 
for the eventuality that you're going to wind up in a situation uh, not of your own making that you uh, that that poses a threat to you and your partner and how are you going to get out of it um, uh, that's just reality um, and, and it's it's head in the sand thinking to to believe otherwise um, so you got to figure it out you got to work it out with your partner you got to advocate for it at your agency uh, and many of the measures that agencies are taking and good on them for for doing so to ensure the safety of their employees wouldn't have helped in this situation if a guy's shooting at you with a 7.62 by 39 projectile uh, and you're wearing your body armor you're dead anyway you know, the most concealable body armor uh, is not going to stop a rifle round. Um, so uh, even if you're wearing, you know, a ballistic uh, external ballistic vest, uh, a level three, uh, three or, or higher vest that can stop rifle rounds, it's not feasible to, to wear the thing under your, your uh, uniform uh, or to wear it, period, uh, during normal daily operations. Um, you the the thing that's going to save your life is keeping your head and having a plan period you know that's that's what i think and and before I, we roll it off i want to uh i want to recognize the the officers who lost their lives uh last week in dallas uh and and i think their names deserve mention and the shooter never deserves mention uh for as long as uh, it takes for his memory to to fade from public awareness so uh i'd like to offer my prayers to the family of officer brent thompson officer patrick zamaripa officer michael kroll officer michael smith and Officer Lauren Ahrens, uh, who were killed by this coward uh, in Dallas, and the families uh, of the, the six officers who were wounded. Uh, we, uh, we hope that uh, your grief is, is brief uh, and the memories you retain are, are happy ones. Uh, and um, that's really all I'm going to say about that. So that's what Chris and I think. We'd like to hear what you think. Uh, concerns, comments, questions, uh, your perspective on operating uh, in today's environment and what, what it takes to keep us safe in an active shooter situation. Email us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.